Good morning to all you faithful people who decided to still come to church spring break weekend. It's great to see you. We doing all right? Yes, awesome. Well, hey, before we dive in, I want to celebrate something with you. Uh, This past week was an incredible week in the life of our church. It was our largest week in the church's history. When you uh, add in our student numbers this past week, we saw over 2,000 people walk through our doors for the first time. 2,042 people. Unbelievable. Huge week. Uh, That's awesome. But what's more awesome is that we saw 28 people say yes to Jesus as their Savior, which is huge. And we baptized 12 people. So just an incredible, incredible week. Uh, If you prayed, if you served, if you gave, if you did anything to contribute uh, to what's going on here, I just want to say thanks. And I want to let you know that God is using you to do things that only he can do. So awesome stuff. Well, let's grab our Bibles, or if you have a device, you can turn your Bibles on. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20 together. If, uh, if you're new to church, new to Bible reading, Exodus, it's really easy to find. It's the second book of the Bible, so just turn to the beginning and flip past Genesis, and you'll find it. Exodus chapter 20. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series on the Ten Commandments called Living Free. And I know that some of us were were probably not sure, just yet at least, how to make sense of that. Because in our minds, these are contradictory things. We would never equate commandments with freedom. And I believe that's due in large part to the freedom myth that exists in our culture. I mean, we live in a culture that tells us all the time that that being free means doing what we want to do. Right? That freedom means uh, that we're unrestrained, uninhibited, uninhibited, that we can do whatever we want to do without anyone or anything standing in our way. But the truth is this, and if you're taking notes, you should write this down. Look, freedom isn't doing what you want to do. Write that down, highlight it, remember it. We'll come back to this time and time again over the next 10 weeks. Freedom isn't doing what you want to do. Freedom is living how you were meant to live. And I'll leave that up there so you can process it and I'll explain. The book of Exodus, where we find the Ten Commandments, it's part of what's known as the Pentateuch. That word means book in five parts and it includes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of which were written by the great prophet Moses. Now, contained in the Pentateuch is the Torah. That's the Hebrew word for law. And the Torah is made up of 613 laws that were passed down from God to his people. Now, I've said this before, but it's worth mentioning again, all 613 laws are not for us today. Uh, These were primarily in a few categories. Uh, Some laws would fall into uh, the ceremonial category, some into the civil category, others into the category of moral law. And those that were ceremonial or civil, they were given primarily to the Jewish people. But God's moral law is absolutely for us today. You see, his moral law never changes. It defines the way of life that God had in mind when he first created the world. And this is important to our series. Contained in the Ten Commandments is the center and the summary of God's moral law. Now, you're going to see this over the next ten weeks, but I'll go ahead and give you a heads up today, all right? Uh, The first four commandments teach us and call us to love God more than anything else in life. The last six commandments teach us and call us to love people as God has prescribed. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's for good reason. Uh, Jesus affirmed the moral law of God in the New Testament. Right When Jesus was asked, hey, what's the greatest commandment uh, by a lawyer? He responded and said back to the lawyer, the first and greatest commandment is... 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, God should be your greatest treasure. You should love him more than anything else in life. Nothing should be uh, in front of him, in place of him. And then Jesus said the second commandment, it's actually a lot like the first. You should love your neighbor as yourself. For those of us showing up today that aren't too excited about the law and the commands and all the rules, I need you to know that in the Ten Commandments, that's all we're taught to do, to love God and to love people. And when we follow that moral law, contrary to what some of us think and believe, we don't lose freedom, we actually gain it. So with that in mind, let's dive in, all right? Here we go. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now, we're starting in the middle of a book. And because of that, we need to set the scene and, and, and kind of understand what's going on here. So I'll do that for us. Uh, about seven weeks before this moment, God freed his people, the nation of Israel, from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. So these are free people. But God wanted to make sure that they lived within the freedom he had provided. And so he calls a meeting. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, uh, the nation of Israel comprised of a few million people at this point. They're gathered around the base of the mountain, listening in, and what does God do? We just read it, God, he speaks. He speaks. If you take a note, you can write this down. When God speaks, it's called a revelation. When God speaks, it's called a revelation. I need you to know today that we haven't shown up to this place just to hear James speak and just to receive information. We've come to church today to hear God speak and to receive revelation, right? I hope that's why you're here at least. If not, um, we're, we're kind of wasting our time. But when God speaks, uh, he speaks to reveal himself to us as people. Think about it like this. If you and I went to lunch this week, and, and let's just say we'd never met. Some of us, we truly have never met, so... We sat on a lunch and I said to you, tell me about yourself. What would you do? Would you perform charades? Would you paint a picture? Uh, would you do an interpretive dance? Like, I hope not. That'd be a weird lunch, at least for one of us. No, what'd you do? You would speak. You'd tell me all about yourself. And the same is true for God. It's incredible to think that we would have no idea who God is or what he's like unless he spoke. And throughout the centuries, he's been doing this in different ways. For example, in the beginning... God spoke creation into being, right? And the book of Romans in chapter one tells us that he did this to put his divine character and divine nature on display in the world. When Jesus came to the earth a couple thousand years ago, he came as the logos, the, uh, the word, the divine speech of God. That's John one, meaning that through Jesus, God spoke to the world of who he is and what he's like. And then finally today, uh, the primary way that God speaks to us is through this incredible book that I hold in my hand called the Bible. This is a fascinating book. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, more than 40 different authors, on three different continents. It was originally recorded in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Today, it's available worldwide in nearly 3,000 languages. It's the best-selling book of all time, and its reliability is unmatched in literature. Like, please hear me. I know when the Bible comes up, people always want to argue, can we trust it? What about all the copies? What about all the translations? Surely we've gotten things wrong. Listen, in literature, when it comes to ancient writings, we typically have just a handful of copies. 
when it comes to the Bible, we have thousands upon thousands of ancient copies of both the Old and New Testaments. And when compared to one another, they are 97 to 99% the same with only small variations in spelling, grammar, and word placement. Friends, this is the word of God. This is God's revelation of himself to us. He inspired human authors to pen the words we find on the pages of this book that he might speak to us today. And so if you want to hear God speaking, you know what you do? Go outside, look to Jesus, and open your Bibles. It's in those places that God tells us who he is and what he's done. And and this is exactly what he told the people here in Exodus 20. He starts with who he is. He said to his people, I am the Lord your God. That word Lord that you see there in verse 2, it should be in all caps in your Bible. If it's not, you need to get a better Bible translation, all right? And people ask me all the time what I use. I I use the ESV, the English Standard Version. I highly recommend it. But it should be in all caps. That word Lord being in all caps signifies that the Hebrew name for God is being used here uh, in Exodus chapter 20. Anytime you see it in all caps, you can remember back to today and go, that's what James told me it means. The Hebrew name for God is Yahweh, and it simply means uncreated creator. It's a name that reminds us that God is the almighty, self-existent, sovereign ruler of the universe. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need uh, need me. He doesn't need anything or anyone else to be who he is. He is the great I am. He is God. Now that word uh, God that you see here in verse two, it's the word Elohim, the Hebrew word Elohim, and this is the title God uses for himself. So in other words, he, he gives us name, title. It'd be like me saying to you, I'm James, your pastor. God says to his people, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Now here's what I love about this simple statement. It reminds us of two incredible aspects of the nature of God, his transcendence and his eminence. To say that God is transcendent mean that, means that he is above and beyond us. So much so that we cannot comprehend all that he is with our tiny little human brains. His holiness is too great. His power is too great. His vastness is too great. We just can't comprehend him. Now to say that God is imminent means that he's close, that he's near to us. I mean, how unbelievable is it to know that we have an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at all times God who desires to walk in close personal relationship with broken, sinful people like you and me. He wants to be Yahweh, our Elohim. That's his heart's desire. It's amazing. Now, Secondly, he tells his people here in Exodus 20 what he's done. And here's what he had done for them. He had brought them into covenant relationship with himself by bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And he did this in a fascinating fashion. Uh, He called upon an 80-year-old shepherd with a stuttering problem. His name was Moses. And what I love about Moses is that he reminds us that God can use anybody. Like if you showed up to church today and that's the burning question uh, on your mind and in your heart, can God really use a person like me? James, I mean, I feel like I lack all these abilities. Uh, I have a past, like I've screwed up, I've sinned. Yes, so did Moses. He killed a guy once. But God says to Moses, I'm gonna use you anyway. In spite of your, your lack of ability, in spite of your past history, I'm gonna use you You're going to speak on my behalf. Isn't that hilarious that God would do this? Guy with a stuttering problem, you're going to be my mouthpiece? God always takes our weaknesses and uses them for his glory. It's amazing, isn't it? Look at me. God can use you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Moses proves that. So he says to Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to have a conversation with the Pharaoh of Egypt. 
This guy was the most powerful ruler in the world at this time. He considered himself to be a god. And Moses was supposed to go to him and and remind him there was only one God, he wasn't it. That the one true God was tired of the way he was treating his people and he needed to let God's people go. Well, as we might expect, uh, Pharaoh refused. He didn't want to do it. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. He thought that was freedom. And so God decided to show up in a powerful supernatural way to show Pharaoh that he meant business. He poured out a series of plagues onto the land of Egypt, and these plagues culminated in the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son. On this particular night, the angel of death swept through the land, killing every firstborn Egyptian male. So men in the room, how many of you are firstborn sons? Just go ahead and raise your hand. You're all dead, right? All of you. You're just gone. You're dead. I would have been right there with you because I'm a firstborn son. We'd all be in the grave together. Now, in order to protect his people, God gave them instructions. He said, before this night comes, I want you to gather his families. I want you to kill a lamb to sac- uh, as a sacrifice to atone for your sins. And I want you to take some of the blood of the lamb. And I want you to paint your doorpost so that when the angel of death comes through the land, he'll see the blood and pass over your homes, sparing your sons from death. So hear me, church. God is the one who set these people free. Are you with me? God did everything. He was the one who sent the plagues. He was the one who provided the means of salvation. Uh, Later on, he's the one that parted the Red Sea. He's the one that wiped out the Egyptian army. God did everything. What did these people do? They did nothing. God did all the work to free them from slavery. And the same is true for us today. You see, when you read the book of Exodus and and you read about uh, their freedom and you read about the Passover, this is all foreshadowing what God would one day do for us in Jesus As we sang earlier, Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, he came to this world to take away our sins. His shed blood on the cross covered our sins that we might experience an exodus out of spiritual death and slavery. He became our Passover lamb that death might pass over us, that we could enjoy an eternal relationship with the God of the universe. God has done everything to purchase our salvation, to purchase our freedom, and we've done what? Nothing. Now, why in the world is it important for us to hear this? Like, we might be thinking, James, I thought we showed up to talk about commandments and rules. Like, where are those? Why are we starting here? Here's why. Please don't miss it. Because if we fail to see who God is and what he's done for us, we will fail to see the beauty and the purpose of his commands. Are you with me? Here's what I mean. Some of you, you walked in the room today, and you see God as nothing more than a dictator. You think that he's this overbearing power-hungry, rules-oriented God who's given you all these commands to take away your freedom and your fun. And you truly believe it's your job to keep all the commands of God so that he stays happy, he stays appeased, and if you mess up or step out of line, watch out because he's there waiting in the wings to take you down. Can I tell you the problem with that view of God? It stands in stark contradiction to what he's told us about himself. Through the Bible and through Jesus God tells us that he's a good, loving father who has set his children free. And because he wants the best for his kids, he's given us rules and commands out of his loving father's heart to ensure that we live within the freedom he's provided for us. I'll give you uh, an explanation. Parents in the room, why do you give your kids rules to follow? Do you give them rules to make them miserable? Like, is that your... Is that your motive? All the teenagers said, amen, yes, that's the only reason. 
to give me rules, they're trying to make me miserable, kill my fun. Look, I'm gonna say something that's gonna be hard, but I wanna help you, and I'm gonna say it because I love you. If your view of God is, is dictator, he gives me rules to make me miserable and to kill my freedom and fun, right now, you are at the spiritual maturity level of a teenager. And I just need you to hear that. Like, it's not a poke. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I wanna help you past it. I wanna help you grow past that. Parents in the room, again, why do you give your kids rules? Not to make them miserable, not to take away freedom and fun. You give them rules and commands because you love your kids, right? I'll give you a picture. Uh, my four-year-old daughter, Rowan, she loves to come out into the yard with me when I'm doing yard work. And if we're in the front yard, I have one rule for her. You have to stay on the grass. If she makes it to the sidewalk, I tell her she's gone too far. Now, why did I institute that rule? I can assure you it's not because I sat back one day and went, how can I ruin her little life, you know, at four years old? How can I take away all her freedom and fun and, and make sure that she knows that I'm the one in charge and in control here? I, I know She's got to stay on the grass. That's not what happened. I gave her that rule. I set that boundary for her because I love my daughter more than life itself. And I want to keep her from anything that could harm or destroy her life. You see, I'll never forget as a kid watching my younger brother come within inches of being hit by a car. We were at my aunt and uncle's house and uh, we're playing in the front yard and the ball we were playing with went into the road. He couldn't have been more than four or five years old at the time. He chased the ball out into the road without looking and literally within inches of being taken out. I don't want that to happen to my daughter. You see, as a loving father, I know that freedom is not found in the middle of the road. It's found in the safety of the front yard. You with me? So I set boundaries from her to, to ensure that she lives within freedom. And hear me, God has done the same. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The opposite of love isn't rules, it's indifference. The opposite of love isn't rules, it's indifference. If I got up here and told you about how much I love my daughter, and then I said to you, yeah, I just let her do whatever she wants to do, she's four. If she wants to go play on Highway 41, I just let her do it because I love her. You would have a hard time believing that I actually love my daughter, right? It's the presence of rules and commands that proves love exists. Isn't it amazing to know that God loves us too much to be indifferent? God loves us so much that he not only purchased our freedom, but he gives us rules and commands, boundaries to live within so that we can actually experience the freedom that is ours. Beautiful, 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 beautiful truth. This is the God that we serve. Now, the, the problem is that many of us when it gets into the commands of God, uh, we don't know how to apply them to our lives. And what we're gonna do over the next 10 weeks is, is try to fix that and correct that starting today. And it all starts here with commandment number one. So if your Bibles are open to uh, Exodus 20, still look at verse three. We have to start here. I'll go ahead and tell you, if you get commands one and two wrong, you'll get the other eight wrong. So we'll come back to one and two time and time again over the next 10 weeks, all right? This is the one that it all hangs on. Look at it. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Command number one. Uh, theologians and scholars have long debated what God meant when he used that phrase, before me. Did God mean uh, you shouldn't have other gods in front of me, behind me, beside me, in competition with me? And the answer is yes, all of the above, right? I mean, think about it like this. If my wife and I, if my wife and I had a conversation and, 
And thank God she's never done this, and I don't think she ever will, but we had a conversation, and she said to me, James, I love you, you're my husband, uh, but there are some other men that I wanna see. <laughs> Just to be respectful, I wanna ask, where would you like them? Would you like them in front of you, <laughs> alongside you, behind you? Well, my answer would be, I want them out of your life, right? I don't want any other dudes floating around you, floating around us. I'm your husband. We're in covenant relationship together, and I don't want to compete with any other guys. This is what God's saying here. He wants us to know that he'll never be content competing with other gods in our lives. Hear me, he doesn't want to be at the top of your priority list. He doesn't want to be the first God in a long line of gods in your life. He wants to rule and reign over every other potential God in your life that could take his place. He wants to rule and reign over your relationships, your money, your marriage, your parenting, your workplace, your school. The list goes on and on and on. To his point, there's one God, he's it, and he and he alone is worthy of your love and your devotion. Now, when God first said this, the people of his day, uh, of, of Moses' day, it would have made a lot of sense to them. During this time in history, many false gods were being worshiped. Uh, you can read about them in your Bibles, but, but these were false gods like Baal, Asherah, Molech, Chemosh, many others, and they were simply demons who blessed people, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you were a demon and you wanted to detract worship from the one true God, what would you do? Well, you'd probably disguise yourself as a false god and bless people that they might worship you in his place. Now, we need to know the reason they worshiped all these false gods was because they represented different things. Success, money, power, pleasure, status, fertility, the list goes on and on. And it's important that we know this because if we're not careful, uh, we might, we might just think that we're better than them. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. That we'd look back and go, ah, oh, those were primitive people. They didn't know any better. I mean, today we're well informed, we know better, we got all this info, all this technology, we're better than them. Let's just be honest. We worship the same guys they worship still today. We just call them by their actual names, right? They might have called them Bolet, Kimosh, Astra, list goes on and on. We just call them success, money, power, pleasure, stuff. So how in the world do you know if you're the one doing this? Like how can you know if, if you've replaced the one true God with a false God in your life? It's simple and I'll help. Uh, here's the question I want you to answer for yourself. What do you live for? What do you live for? What does your life revolve around? What's that thing in your life that, that you would say, like if somebody takes that from you, it's gonna crush you. You can't have it, you can't take it. If you take it, my world will fall apart. What's that thing you run to when life gets hard or stressful? That, that thing, or, or maybe it's a person that you run to to find strength and comfort and peace in those hard seasons. What is it? I want you to know if your answer is anything other than God and him alone, you're guilty of breaking command number one. And I know some of us wanna argue. Well, James, my answer is not a bad thing, bro. It's a good thing. And if that's your argument, I would say to write this down and remember it. When good things become God things, it's a bad thing. When good things become God things, it's a bad thing. I won't argue with you. Your children are great. Your spouse, your significant other, great thing. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with money, power, success, pleasure, all those things when used in the right way can be really, really good things. But when those good things become God things, that's a bad thing. Now you're worshiping a false God 
and that force, uh, or that false god, it's forcing you back into slavery. And I'll give you a picture of what I mean, all right? In Exodus 16, this is fascinating to me. Exodus 16, the people of Israel, they're now free. God's led them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They've seen him do amazing things. They saw the plagues. They saw him part the Red Sea. They saw him close the Red Sea over the Egyptian army, killing them all. They're out in the wilderness. They're free, but they're hungry. And so guess what they do? They start complaining about their freedom. They start thinking back to Egypt. Oh, we had it so much better in Egypt. At least when we were there, we got to eat all the bread and all the meat we wanted. It almost seems like God freed us and brought us out here to kill us. Now, before we uh, come, come cracking down on them, giving them a hard time, can we just confess we've been there? I mean, how many of us have found ourselves running back to the very things God's freed us from as if those things have more to offer than him? People do it all the time, don't they? They run back to their money, their success, their position of power. Uh, they run back to some false God, believing that by doing so, they're exercising freedom because they're doing what they want to do, when in reality, they are enslaved to a false God. And I would venture to say, that's why some of us in the room today are so miserable in life. We think we're free because we're doing what we want to do. But what we don't realize is that in reality, we're doing what that false God wants us to do. It's controlling us and we're enslaved. I'll make it practical. Second uh, Peter 2.19 tells us that whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. So, for example, some of us, uh, we might think we're free when it comes to our money because we're using money like we want to use our money. It's our money. We worked hard for it. Nobody can tell us what to do with it, even God himself. But what's crazy is that you're not really free, and, and I can tell you how I know that. Because the more money you get, the more money you want. The more money you get, uh, the harder you try to hold on to it all. You don't give. You don't share. You're not generous. You have a false God called money, and it's controlling you. And your belief is that the more I get, the more satisfied I'll be. You're a slave. What about this? Some of us, we think we're free when it comes to relationships. Uh, single people in the room. We think we're free because we're dating who we want, how we want, and nobody can tell us any differently, even God himself. And we see that as freedom. But, but let me ask you this, single person in the room. What happens when that savior that you call boyfriend or girlfriend, what happens when they go walking out of your life? What happens when that person you put all your stock into, all your trust into, that person that you've said, save me. The life of singleness, it's a life of hell, and, and I'll experience heaven if you bring me out in, uh, into, into a life of, of dating and companionship. What happens when they leave? Your world comes crashing down, doesn't it? And why? Because you have a false God in your life that's taken the place of the one true God. You're a slave and you don't realize it. And married people, let's not act like the single people are the only ones who do this. Married people, what happens when your marriage blows up? Because you refuse to do marriage God's way. You see, in my experience, I've often found that the biggest problem in marriage is that we try to be our own gods. Instead of serving our spouse faithfully, we see ourselves as the God of the relationship and we think it's their responsibility to serve us. Because why? Because we're God. We're in control. We're deserving of their worship and their adoration what happens when your marriage blows up because that's the way you treat marriage? Look, those of us who have experienced it, we know that's not freedom, that's misery. 
That's slavery in more ways than one. I'll give you one more. I'll give you one more. What about this? What about this? Uh, For those of us in the room who think we're free because our name is at the top of the org chart right at work, we're free because we hold a certain title or position of power. Nobody can tell us what to do. We get to tell everybody else what to do. You're not really free, are you, if that's you? Like, what would happen tomorrow if the rug was pulled out from under you? You lost your job, your company shut down. Even worse, you got demoted and someone else got promoted into your position. You would question everything about yourself, wouldn't you? Your identity would vanish overnight. You would question your self-worth, your value, your talent, your ability, your performance, which proves, look, which proves you're a slave. You're a slave. So what do you do if this is you? How in the world do you escape slavery and live in the freedom that God has provided and purchased through his son, Jesus Christ? Well, I've just got one answer. I've just got one answer, and it's this. You need to lay down your lesser gods before God. That's it. Please hear me. Look, if there is a false God in your life taking the place of the one true God, you don't just have a behavior problem. You have a God problem. Are you with me? Like the goal here is not to correct bad behavior. What you have to do is choose to worship the right God. And worshiping the right God includes you laying down your lesser gods before him. So how do you do that? Well, if you're not a Christian in the room, it starts with a relationship with Jesus. There's one God, it's Jesus. It's him and it's him alone. You need to trust in Jesus as your Passover lamb. You need to trust in Jesus as the one who's provided an exodus out of spiritual death and slavery, the one who died and rose again so that you could experience life and freedom with God for all of eternity. That's where it has to start. Now, if you are a Christian, listen, don't miss this, please. Laying down your lesser gods before God means on a daily basis choosing to live in the freedom that is already yours. Like, I have a hard time knowing what to say to people when they come to me and James, I struggle with this or battling with this or I can't get free of this. And I'll go, do you know Jesus? Yes, I know Jesus. And I'm sitting there going, you're free. You're free. You think Jesus gave up his life for you so that you could stay in bondage? You're free. You have to choose to live in freedom. In Galatians 5.1, Paul said it. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom to do what? Freedom to live in the freedom he's provided. Freedom to live as we were meant to live. Freedom to worship the one true God. If you are choosing any other God in his place, you've abandoned freedom and you've run back to slavery. Like what you're doing, it'd be like a prisoner being released from jail and then a couple weeks later going back to jail, sitting in his cell wishing he could be free. It's crazy, isn't it? That's a picture of who you are if if you know Jesus, but you've abandoned your freedom. God has given you everything you need to live the life you were meant to live. He gave the life of his son so that you could put your sin to death. He's put his Holy Spirit inside of your body so that you have the power to live as he created you to live. Church, choose to live in freedom. Last night, uh, we're sitting at the dinner table. Awful day in my house yesterday. Really bad day. My daughter was awful. Like straight heathen, man, all day. Like, I literally had to leave the house at 8 o'clock last night and go to a quiet place just to focus on what I was going to talk about today. It was unreal. But, but at the dinner table last night, I said to her, finally, I said, Rowan, why do you keep doing things to get yourself in trouble? Do you know what she said back to me? She said, I just want to do what I want to do. 
no kidding. Well, at least she's honest. At least we know what we're working with, right? I just want to do what I want to do. And when she said that, I kind of smirked and I thought about what I was preaching today. And I thought to myself, that's not just a four-year-old problem. That's the problem for many of us. That we just want to do what we want to do and then we label that freedom. It's not freedom. It's slavery. Freedom is living as you were meant to live. And that freedom is found in God and him alone. It all starts with worshiping the one true God. I want us to pray together. Obviously, we need God's help to do that. So let's ask for his help. Will you join me? Father, we're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for the freedom that you have purchased for us through your son, Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to live as slaves any longer. We have no obligation to sin. We have no obligation to our past. We have no obligation to our enemy. But we're free to live the life that you've saved us to live. God, some of us need help believing that today. God, help us to believe it. Some of us, God, need help believing that you're a good, loving father who actually wants what's best. God, would you help us to believe it? Some of us need help believing, God, that that we are truly free. Help us to believe it and help us to walk in the freedom that's ours. God, I, I believe there's people in this room right now who have never put their faith in Jesus as their Savior, their Exodus, their Passover lamb. God, would you give them the faith they need to believe, the courage they need to express faith in your son? With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, if you're sitting here right now and and God's just dealing with your heart, you know that you've allowed all kind of gods into your life except for the one true God. You're looking for all the right things in all the wrong places and you know that needs to end today. And you need to look to Jesus. Look, if that's you, I would just say right in your seat, why don't you just cry out to God? You have nothing to earn. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to fix. God loves you, and he invites you to come to him just as you are. Why don't you just say to him, God, I need you to be my God. I believe today that none of these lesser gods can deliver. They can't satisfy. They can't give me the joy and peace I need. But God, today, I'm saying I believe that you can. So I put my faith in Jesus as my way out of sin, death, hell, slavery, and my way into freedom and life with you. God, take control of my life. Be my God. Help me to live the life I was meant to live. Look, if you just prayed that with me or something like that, In just a moment, our prayer team's gonna be here. Uh, They'll be here when you're making your way out the door as well. I just wanna strongly encourage you not to leave this place until you've let someone know what God's done in your life. And so in just a moment, just come and tell our prayer team as we sing, hey, I I said yes to Jesus. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, We'd love to put a gift in your hand that's gonna help you get started in your relationship with Christ. Again, just don't leave without telling somebody what God's done for you today. For the rest of us, for the rest of us, it's time right now in this moment to come to grips with who our God is. We're gonna worship our God together, but if he's not your God, then I would say to you, instead of standing and singing like he is, why don't you get on your knees?
and lay down your lesser gods before him and allow him to take his rightful place in your life again. Our prayer team will be here. If we can pray with you or for you, we'd love to do that. Father, would you just invade the space? God, pour out your spirit. Do a work in our lives that only you can do. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Prayer team.